Folks, welcome back inside the studios of Power Talk 1210. Uh, please go to our website, powertalk1210.com. Download the app. You can stream it worldwide. This is hour number two of the Jake Feinberg Show. And uh, a few weeks ago, I um, called the LA Musicians Union and asked for Garnett Brown's number. They gave it to me, and I talked to my man, and uh, we set up a time to do a, a live radio interview. It's my honor to introduce one of the greatest trombone players and African-American artists in our country's history, Garnett Brown, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be, uh, yeah, Garnett, can I, I mean, I was going through some, I was just doing some some uh, studying last night. Mm. Um, you, can you talk to the audience about uh, the person who gave you your first big break? Uh, that's interesting. <clears throat> when I was in the service, which was like 59 to 62. And at the end of uh, 62, uh, I <clears throat> was called by Charles Lloyd, who was playing with Chico Hamilton at the time. And, of course, I was actually a uh, A&R man for Duke and Peacock Records down in Houston. <laughs> that was interesting. Wow. wow. And then when Charles called and asked if he... If I might want to join them with a new quintet with uh, Chico and so forth, and I did that. And during that particular time, we we did work around uh, L.A. <clears throat> because that's where uh, Chico was uh, mainly stationed. Although eventually, though he he went to New York and stayed there. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we did that, and we did some gigs locally and then we did some gigs uh, going across uh, the country ending up in New York City so at that point when they ended up in New York City that's the place where I wanted to stay so I got a free ride there <laughs> and uh, and I did that so that was one of the biggest or uh, the, the first professional kind of, and we made a record before we left uh, L.A. What was the record's name? Uh, Drum Fusion. Drum Fusion, and and I, you know, I wanted to ask you. Listed somewhere, huh? <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I know I'm, the, the discography <laughs> no, is so long, and uh, all, uh, but go ahead. <laughs> no, it's fine. I wanted to talk to you. Um, well, first of all, let's go back because I mean, yeah. Lo Lloyd didn't just Lloyd must have heard you play before. So how did well, he? Of even... course, we were both from Memphis, Tennessee, and, oh, and oh. kids. Oh, so you are part of that contingent with Jimmy Lunsford and Booker T. Jones and Maurice White? I mean, you that, that was a bastion of act, of hotbed of activity in music. Well, that's true. It, it was. And still going on, you know, with, with uh, especially uh, uh, the Earth, Wind, and Fire group. They stayed together a long time and did a lot of stuff that's out there making money like mad. <laughs> You so you yeah. um you uh, and also David Porter was from there and a few other cats. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know him personally, but I did meet him when I was at one point back in Memphis for for a little while, but I wasn't going back to stay or anything like that. Just like most of us who left, did not uh, 
come back for that purpose. You know what? That I know of, anyway. When um, I interviewed Dennis Budimer a few weeks back on my show. Oh, he, yeah. He was talking. You mean the guitar player? Yeah, he was in Chico's band, too. I'm not sure if he was in the same band at the same time as you. Yeah, the guitar player. Uh-huh. And he was talking about these cross-country trips with Chico's band um, you know, it would. They'd get in a couple of big trucks. Uh, his yeah, Chico's right. brother, Chico's brother, would pack all the equipment in one. The re- the band would drive in the other. Right. And there was a situation where um, uh, Dennis would get very hungry on the road, and he'd say, "Hey, Chico, can we stop for a bite to eat?" And Chico would say, "You know, I, you know, Dennis, we're we're not allowed to stop here. We're black." Uh, can you can you talk about I think it's important for the younger generations I mean I'm 37 years old my daughters can you talk about what you were up against when you traveled across the country on the Chitlin circuit or just to relocate I mean talk about that visceral hatred and racism mm-hmm. well <clears throat> I never did uh, take a a trip down south uh, uh, at as a uh, high schooler. So I was just in high school and Frank Strozier and there was a trumpet player uh, uh, who looked like he might have been uh, totally from the uh, Caucasian uh, race, but he really wasn't. And not even his, his whole family. You know, I don't know how all that happened, but of course there was a big mixture there, but didn't disturb anybody in those days as youngsters. Now, there were times when we had uh, some very trying uh, situations, and we happened to be in a driving, and Luther was his name, Luther Steinberg. Well, there's Steinberg, so... Uh, so, anyway, Luther wanted to drive, and, and he did, and we had gotten to a point where he loved to smoke, so he's smoking, and the smoke is swirling around in there, and here comes a cop car. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. And when he stopped us and pulled us over, there's Chico and, not Chico, but uh, 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 Luther, and there was, uh, uh, what's his name? We used to call him Strauss, and uh, he played alto saxophone. Did, did you know about an alto saxophone player there in Memphis? Uh, what was his name? Uh, I, no, named, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, that was named uh, Strozier? Frank oh, Frank Strozier, of course, Frank Strozier, of course, sure, sure. Yeah, right, good, okay. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> of course, they stopped in a in a hub of place, places, you know, to it, that's Chicago, before going on to New York. But anyway, we sat there, and we, didn't, we weren't saying anything, and Luther, I guess he was accustomed to this kind of interaction with the, with the uh, 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 legal officials out there riding in their cars and things, seeing who they could cop next. But anyway, what, when he talked to me, he said, what are you doing here with all these boys in there? And he said, look, these boys work for me, and we're just tra- traveling to the next stop. And he said, well, look, you, you got to cool it on that. Well, he didn't say that. You know. He says, you got to watch that uh, foot of yours. You know, right, right. We, they were really zing, zooming. Zooming around. We, pardon me? Yeah, they, you guys were going fast. Yeah. yeah. Look, no, we were just going fast to our next place, you know, <laughs> to play. So anyway, we did that. But it, it really had nothing really to do with the jazz and things. It's just a common 
kind of occurrence that even happened with other people who might have been uh, preachers or they might have been uh, uh, letter carriers because then, you know, you could, you could carry the mail. They allowed that to happen. And uh, that was just one of the things because we all, most of us, we were scared as we could be, really. And to be scared and not say anything was the best situation that was there. So we were listening close to the conversation with with the uh, police officer. But anyway, that's that's one of the things, man. Some of the things were bad, just like when uh, 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 Nat King Cole went down there and people jumped the stage and they had to stop the uh, affairs because there are other people who are saying, we don't do that kind of mixture around here, you know. So I don't know why. No, I mean this is. The, I mean, I guess my my follow up. Yeah, no, it's it's. Do you feel, um, from a social consciousness conscious point of view, that have we, based on the fact that we're nearing the end of Barack Obama's second term, mm-hmm. how do you feel like we've have have we advanced as a as a society? Well, uh, I'm not too interested in discussing this uh, about. Uh, uh, have we advanced because the next person that you will ask will say yes and then the, and the next one uh, would probably say no. Uh, and if you look and have been keeping up with aspects of the uh, all of the primaries that are coming forth because all the people who are running for offices are just all over the joint and they're pulling out the best that they think they can pull out to showcase what their big points are. And now, as far as, like, say, uh, 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 Hillary Clinton, you know, yeah, and uh, she's running heavily against, uh, what's, what's the fellow's it's name? Bernie Sanders, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and they're kind of similar, similar and don't even know it, you know, so... Who knows about all that? And I can't really say, because if you look at things like now, what are the, the Congress going to say when uh, Obama steps in and gives his uh, choices of whom he wants to put forth toward the fact that uh, Scalia just died? You know, and, and what's really interesting about that is that with Scalia, dying, most people thought he was about the next guy in the whole uh, nine uh, persons of them there. So you've got all those those kinds of things going, and and who knows what's going to come up next, because if he puts up somebody, all of the Republicans are going to just stop it. It has nothing to do with what's what is correct, what is good for the country and all. That there's so many things I can't believe it how they could take all of those positions and think that they are moving certain things ahead and all the Republicans are just doing negative stuff. Stop, no, no. Right. And, and I just so, I I'm trying to figure out as a as an African American uh male, you've been on the earth a lot longer than me. You've played with guys like Chico. I interviewed Charles Lloyd. That guy doesn't screw around. Okay, mm-hmm. you know you had Master Higgins. You had Dizzy. Yeah. Okay, you had right. all these. Ba- you had all these dudes that would not tolerate this stuff. And I, I just don't understand where the leadership is to push back against this. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is how come somebody has not come up with the right way to express the fact that this intransigence and lack of doing anything boils down to just full-on cultural bias? Mm-hmm. I don't understand where the voices are. So that's why, I mean, you don't, I don't want to keep going if you don't want to go there, but mm-hmm. you're the, you're the, it's the cats like you that I want to talk to to find out, you know, how, how it's gotten to the point where it feels like from a equality point of view, we're not really, we really haven't grown very much. I mean, the, 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 sta- the static answer is, well, we have Oprah and, um, you know, you have Barack Obama's the president, so we've made a lot of progress. But, boy, I mean, the last eight years, man, and now as it gets down to the, you know, when they're just blatantly just trying to find the side that they're going to be on so that they can just disagree Mm-hmm. That to me is cynical. Have you seen? Was there a period of time that you felt this, or how did you at, deal with that kind of stuff when you were younger? Especially because oh yeah, back in high school and grammar school, <laughs> all the way, all the way up through high school, mm-hmm. we knew about that. My mother and father uh, taught me to uh, move around with good sense, and you don't talk back to people, especially the authorities. And when she says like authorities, she's talking about policemen every time you see them. But the odd thing about it, which uh, I, I have remembered for a long time, that where we lived, we had a fence and a gate, and we would, uh, at our house, and uh, we'd be sitting there late at night sometimes, this is summertime, you know, the police would come by and say, how are you guys doing over there? Well, what are, what are you doing, anything? He said, no, we just just having a long, fun conversation. He said, well... Go right ahead. Just don't stay up too late. You know? Right. That's what they lay on us. And that was sensible. You know, there that, that wasn't anything wrong with that. You know? Because there were no black cops at the time. But even if they had been, they probably would have acted similarly. You know, I, it, the way I see it and, and the uh, uh, totality of, of this particular stream of thought that we're talking about. But... Uh, I don't personally get angry about any of that, really. Mm-hmm. What I'm angry about is what how it has grown totally out of whack when all of these cops are choking guys, big guy, big 350 pounds, and they kill him right there in front of everybody. You know, that's the worst of all of them that I've seen. It. Another cop gets up in, in Cleveland, uh, jumps out of his car because somebody had called up and says there's a, a, a person in the park that has a gun and he's pointing it at people. And then he goes on to say, uh, I don't know how old he is. He, he, he looks like um, a youngster. So what does the cop do when they drive up fast, zinging up, pulls, and he's got his gun out already, bang, shoots the guy twice, I think the little kid. Little kid. Well, I think he was twelve years old. Yeah, Tamir Rice. Yeah. Yeah. No, so they, 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 the radio called the dispatch said there was a threatening black man in the park with a gun, and and uh, and, and they continued to say man. Yeah. Why? Why do you think there's a gross over knee jerk gross over reaction to this? St- I, I. You know what? I, I guess here's the better question: How do your daughters feel in this day and age? How do they? I mean, are they? They're obviously successful professionals. You were going to go visit them last time I talked to you because yeah. they were going to throw you a birthday party. How? Oh, yeah, it was great. Ron Carter was the first one to walk in. Loved it. <laughs> you know, you, okay. I, tell, me how, tell me how they feel about it. I mean, because you're coming at it from a historical point of view, a lot of life experience, and a lot of 
street scholar learning outside of academia, but your daughters grew up differently. They were blessed because their father had made a great living and they had a good life and they've obviously gone on to do good things. How do they feel about it? Uh, now, you're still talking about my daughters? Yes, you're, yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, uh, I have been teaching and also still playing and out here in California because it's now going on 40 years that we've been here. So that's, that's a rather long time. That's great, man. Think about it. But uh, since Herbie Hancock came out earlier than I did, and I think that his wife and some of the other buddies we knew and all of whom had come from New York too, and and twisted my wife's arm. We had two babies at the time. Uh, one was about two and a half, and the other one was uh, not even walking yet. But <clears throat> anyway, we came out here, and eventually that got to be pretty good. Well, both kids went to Catholic school because my wife is Catholic, and she's, she's staunchly uh, engaged in, in the religion, not against anybody else, because she, she's just Catholic, period, sure. but got a lot of common sense. As the kids grew on up higher, they were both excellent students, uh, the older one maybe a little more than the other <laughs> one. Um, so we, they were on the swimming team, my uh, wife took them to the swimming lessons, and it was a wonderful thing to happen because they enjoyed it. They enjoyed it in the summertime when school was out because there were parks who went around uh, certain communities and have competitions and things. As a matter of fact, in 1980, was it 84, uh, that the Olympics, was uh, Summer Olympics were mm-hmm. out in L.A.? I forget now exactly the date. But both my daughters swam in the uh, uh, Olympic uh, trial, not no, not trials. They just win or lose on those little things like that. But they were very uh, given wonderful little, uh, how would you say, rewards for doing what they did. And when they went to high school, they did the same thing. Both were on the swimming teams, and the uh, the older one was also on on the uh, basketball team. So all of those things with athleticism happening and all of that and getting close to time for, for one to graduate and two years behind her was the other one. So we, we talked about that for the longest, and I, we let her, the older one, uh, uh, put in what, it, it, what we all thought would be her real and sincere honesty about where she wanted to go and things of that type, you know, and write those letters. <laughs> and applications, rather. So we got through that, and the interesting thing about it was she went to Stanford. So Stanford didn't have the best, not the best, I mean, uh, how would you call it? Uh, was It was the last application that was put in the mail in Little Rock, Arkansas, because that's where we were at the time. Wow. Because my sister and my mother was in Memphis, and uh, my sister had four boys, <laughs> and you know that 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 was quite something. Yeah, I can and imagine. They taught them how to how to drive, you know, my sister's boys. So anyway, with all those things going on, they were just having a 
wonderful time. So we finally got that uh, application off, and believe it or not, she got a letter that invited her, her to come to Stanford, and it was it, it was wonderful. And but she still wasn't knocked out. But when she went there, uh, uh, she was completely thrilled by it all, but had sense enough to understand that first things first, keep up those grades. She kept her grades up four straight years and got four straight col- uh, 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 how would you call those things? Uh, four straight like honor roll. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if they really had had what they call an honor roll. They could have, as a matter of fact. I, I don't really really don't remember. But those scholarships come in if you keep keep the grades where they should be. Uh, you, you'll receive payroll grants every year, and that's what happened with her. And the other one, when she went to Michigan as an outsider, she got a stipend for that. And then, the, and they all three—I mean, uh, all both of them—worked uh, related to the school. Because the first one that went to Michigan, uh, Miranda, the first one named Ariana. Sorry, I should have said something before that. But anyway, Miranda was first year she was awarded a work study program and so okay we're gonna give you this so you can make a make some money and maybe take a little uh lightweight off of a uh something like that and it was great and guess where they put her in the law school and when i went there after she had gone because i was in new york at the time so uh, I, i just happened to be there because two big things were going on, and that was the first, what was it, uh, concert that was being put on. Well, not the first concert. Uh, I think it was the second, because they had already chosen someone else to make the music by George Ween and his, uh, uh, what do you call Carnegie Hall Jazz Band. Sure. Don't know if you remember that band or not. You need to talk to John Fattis about that. I will know. I will, absolutely. A lot yeah. of stuff that you'd enjoy. Because, first of all, John played in that band, uh, the band we're talking about. You know. But I had gone, so I, we, we, we missed it. But anyway, that's what they did, a variety of things. Uh, and that's what my wife always wanted for them to do, was have a, 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 a version of... Uh, no, I wouldn't call it diversion. That means getting away from something. Anyway, so no, you know, I, I mean, Garnett, I, I, I really, um, uh, to me, uh, this is a fascinating topic. Um, uh, they kept their nose to the grindstone. They did what they were supposed to do. They stayed out of trouble with the law. They did mm-hmm. good grades, and they became good professionals. And, um, and it's a testament to you guys as parents. I want to, I want to read you a quote from a buddy of yours. I want to see if you know who it is. Um, and, uh, and, and then, um, and then comment on it. Okay. It says, when the band formed in 1969, I just moved to New York. I was playing with Nancy Wilson and I had just come back from the Copa. Herbie Hancock had just formed his band and they were opening at the village Vanguard. The band is Joe Henderson, Johnny Coles, Garnett Brown, Pete LaRocca and Ron Carter. Mm-hmm. The trio I was in was with Nancy and Mickey Roker. We played our mm-hmm. first set at the Copa and then ran over to see Herbie's new band. Ron, 
this is a good story. Ron Carter hadn't yeah. gotten there yet, so Herbie asked me to fill in for Ron till he got there. Yeah. The reason was Ron was doing a Broadway show. Herbie knew they couldn't start on time, that he couldn't be there on time. Pete LaRocca, mm -hmm. this is the greatest part, Pete LaRocca didn't show up at all. I oh. played and Mickey Roker played the first set for Herbie. The next day, Ron asked me to fill in for him in the first set again because he was going to be late all week. It turns out that Mickey would also come and play with me because LaRocca was always late for the first set. Uh, when Pete, oh, because he was one of the drummers that was playing in the show? Uh -huh. No, no, no. This is it. When Pete finally came in, Herbie, uh -huh. Herbie said to him, Pete, why don't you come here on time? The set starts at 9.30. Pete mm -hmm. said, I don't feel like playing till 10.30. Oh, man. <laughs> Can you well, talk about late LaRocca? Like, what is what the heck was happening with late LaRocca, man? Anyway, that's Buster Williams talking. That was him. That was the interview I did with him. Uh-huh. Well, that sounds great, man. I, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> I think that in that situation with... Uh, uh, the bass player that you said came in. Buster, in Buster Williams, yeah. Uh, this, I, I would imagine that they, I think they were so secure in the way they wanted to handle things themselves personally. I don't think it had anything to do with anybody. It's just, except that of the ones we've spoken of who had come late on various things, uh, it would put, as he put the pressure on Herbie to like, uh, feed that gap on a particular night, on a, a pic particular uh, concert, or whatever. But I know that that Herbie uh, loved Pete. Pete was really uh, outstanding. I mean, same thing. Miles Miles loved him, and also Train loved him. I know. He he was a great drummer man and musician. Period. So. Whatever all of that was, I guess only you and I are talking about. That. <laughs> well, I, I just think I just I just find it funny that um, he he was like, no, I just don't feel like playing till ten thirty. You know, <laughs> that's that's, that's I had never heard that one, man. But so no, that, I was, no, that was yeah, so that was with Buster. I you know I wanted to ask you going back to the um, again, I'm a non musician, but you know I've interviewed Bobby Hutcherson, I've interviewed Charles Lloyd. Those cats were in Southern California. You when you, around the time you joined Chico. Yeah. Um, they went, uh, the best I could get out of Bobby was that they were experimenting off the traditional blues, the one, four, five blues scale. They were trying new things. They were stretching it out. Um, I was hoping you could talk about in your mind, the language of jazz, how, why it was so vibrant and how it grew so heavily when you really first in, in the sixties and, and into the early seventies, how, how do you account for the language growing? Because it, there was a period of time when blues jazz was and was fused with blues i mean you couldn't get away from it the two were interconnected and mm -hmm. I, it, to my ear today when i listen to if i listen to jazz it sounds a lot like it's been class the the classical classicalization of jazz has really taken hold i don't hear the african roots as strongly and mm -hmm. i wanted to get your thoughts on that especially during the time when you were with lloyd and even to herbie when that stuff was pulsating. I, I had a cat on. Yeah. I had a right. cat on before who said basically the early seventies scared the crap out of white America. <laughs> that's. I just like to get your thoughts on that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm afraid I miss being scared. <laughs> You're not part of it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but you were in it anyway. Yeah. As far as that was concerned, if you listen at one of the newer people, uh, because uh, the pianist that plays 
with with uh, uh, what's the trumpet player name? Is it uh, Win, Win Marsalis? Oh no 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 no. Um, he he. Let me see. What is his name? Uh, Cody. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, no, no, no. What's his name? Uh, yeah, yeah no, I know who you're talking I, I about. I, it'll come name, to me. But, uh, yeah. Second name is Bodie. Bodie, yeah, uh, uh, Chris Bodie. Chris Bodie. Chris Bodie, right. Well, the piano player that, that played with him, now that's one of the guys, if you have, have an opportunity to talk about talk about the same subject that you just broached, uh, you, you'll you probably learn a great deal because he is absolutely outstanding uh as a player and if i, if I remember his his name after this i'll either give you a call or sure. something. <laughs> well what is your take on it i'm not i'm you you're i'm talking to garnett brown i want to know your your feelings on it because to me it was everything was scintillating you look at all the the guys that were running the shows whether it was at impulse or uh, you know, I mean, you had Gary Bartz playing on Buddy Guy records. You had, I mean, this is setting aside the LA studio scene. And for those that don't know, Garnett Brown was the session, the A1 session player, probably a second tier, um, you know, wrecking crew kind of cat. But I mean, really, I mean, I, I mean, tell me about that period when, you know, we lost Bobby Kennedy, Coltrane, Martin Luther King. As far as I'm concerned, the st- you were with Herbie at that time. Can you yeah. talk about how the if it, right. if if you channeled some of that hurt and pain and and anger into your music? You know, uh, since I wasn't really a composer or anything, what I did was utilize what uh, uh, as a base uh, with Herbie's music because he was. The composer, he, he he wasn't looking for any of us to do a lot of writing because hell, he could do if he just wanted to 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 do a solid situation and feel secure about it. He would do it all because he he's really just that good. Yeah. And uh, what I thought was 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 very interesting, since you brought up the death uh, of, of uh, Martin Luther King, but then again, that was. Uh, John uh, uh, Kennedy. Yeah, Kennedy. Yeah. Before that, and then, man, then uh, Bobby, his his brother. So all of that stuff was going on, and still nobody could stop that craziness because it w- it would have been easier to do so if they had some other big guys like those big. Uh, uh, I would. Uh, bodyguards that they had that it just how did they let a little guy get in there and kill somebody like that so you don't know we asked the same thing about kennedy being shot from that uh, hotel straight down to the car including the the uh uh i think he he was the governor of texas because i think they were riding together in the same car anyway that uh, these are thoughts I haven't thought about in a while. That's fine. So uh, anyway, with all of those things happening, there are musicians and artists in 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 general sense that were there to create uh, what at least they feel through the music instead of going nutty outside, you know, and making a mess of things which uh, was unnecessary. Uh, I, I can't say if there was anybody who actually had that as a motive, but uh, right. certainly 
uh, having seen the situation as it had developed, it was time for him to speak up or her or whomever. So I think that's one of the things that happened, and maybe if some of the classical idioms uh, partially, or I won't say in whole because that really wasn't the case, and I think what we're talking about is just the amalgamation of the two in creating one whole that sustains itself and others can pick out, ah, oh, that's a classical element being interjected here and, and all of that, you know, so I really don't... Uh, well, you're starting to, no, Garnett, you're starting to cook now, man. Keep going, man. You're starting mm-hmm. to cook. So... <laughs> now, I mean, you know, here's the thing. I, what I noticed specifically is that... Um, uh, I, uh, by 75 on, and this is a bit of a generalization, but truthfully, all African percussion was always, I mean, if you looked at any Oliver Nelson album, any Leon Thomas album, now, you, you know, those guys were playing, I mean, Rasson Roland Kirk, Dizzy, uh-huh. Go- Dizzy Gillespie. There, uh-huh. there was African, there was uh, Afro-Cuban music, the percussion was there, there was all sorts of indigenous uh-huh. instruments, and that was all on record. Yeah. And all of a sudden... And the bottom end bass was deep and very much just, it was just, it was thick and it was, it was pulsating and it was blues based. Mm-hmm. And, and now the, there's, no, I don't hear, I don't see any African percussion anymore. That's what I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at yeah. is uh, the strip. I'm not saying it was a conscious thing, but you know, I guess I look back on it and I say, you know, I miss, I heard a story one time from Carl Burnett, the great drummer. He, yeah. he said that uh, he was with Freddie Hubbard Mm-hmm. And they were playing a double bill with the Crusaders, mm-hmm. and uh, Freddie Freddie was one of these guys that would let it spill out in the street. But you know, I mean, he was a pretty out there cat, and he was, yeah, he, and right. he, he, and to me, this was this is when our I will know that we're heading in the right direction as a society mm-hmm. is that what he did at this concert was he the band was playing, and Freddie was really ticked off that the audience in his mind was not engaged. He oh. stopped the concert. He started berating the audience and scream, oh, like basically yeah. cursing. Well, and I can't agree with him having done that because he's done it and done it many times now. Well, of course he's he's gone now. So I guess here's my point: is that is that it was it was the, the mentality. It seems to and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, with these cats, it could have been Miles turning his back on the audience. That that gets all the mm-hmm. press. Lee Morgan, these guys. It, to me, it was they, they, this was constant creation. They were saying. I dig what I'm doing, and you, I, you, I'm going to play it for you, and you can decide whether you dig it or not. But I'm not here to please you. I'm here to play. I'm, I'm here to get off. Is that do you? Do you and here I go. And here I go. Exactly. So That's I mean, right. and the, the the rest of them stayed there. It's like George Coleman told me that when they finished the set, a guy came up to him and said, "Mr. Davis, that was really wonderful. How about that?" Didn't even know him, but right. that was that was a uh, George Coleman finishing up the set, whatever <laughs> that set was. Wow! But Miles wasn't to be found <laughs> at the end of that gig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> talking to Garnett Brown here on the Jake Feinberg show. I got a a listener uh, uh, checked in, and he he wanted to know. Did you ever work with John Gilmore or anyone from Sunrise Orchestra or maybe the Arts Ensemble of Chicago? Any of the avant-garde composers? Did you ever fit into one of those amalgamations? A few, but the funny thing about it is that uh, uh, I'm 
trying to think now exactly. There were a couple couple of composers who had a little band to put it together, but we never really did much. But it was always uh, fun to deviate from what we the, the normal fare that we run into when we go to a rehearsal or something. Who who were they? Uh, I'm trying to think his okay, name. Okay, I got Look it. at his face right now. And, and, <laughs> but Well, here's the better question. Let me ask you, while you think about that, can you tell me, have, did you ever, have you ever worked with the drummer Jim Keltner? Jim Keltner, yeah. As a matter of fact, Jim Keltner, Keltner was out here before I went to California. And he was a jazz snob, and then, by the way. And then all of a sudden, oh, it was with, uh, who was Keltner playing with at that time? Uh, he was playing with... Uh, a Wait, fine drummer. I, I really liked him. You know, Keltner, oh. was, Keltner was playing with... Uh, oh, my God, now I'm blank. Now you're making me forget stuff. Uh, uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. It, uh, there, was a, there was a cat. There was a couple of cats out there. But, but Kelt, uh, the, the reason I love doing this show is because to, to tap into Keltner and to know that he would sit at the Dragon Wick or the, and basically uh, like watch Charles Lloyd and Hutcherson play, and then Lloyd would come out, and he dubbed the group... Uh, Jack Jack Folks was his name. He played with Jack Folks, and they he, mm. and Lloyd dubbed them the, the modern jazz proteges. Now you look at Keltner; he's everyone knows him as the the, the king of the studio musician. The cat mm-hmm. grew up; all he wanted to be was Philly Joe Jones the, and, and, and Albert and Albert Stinson too. Really? Well, I don't know. Did you, you knew, did you know Albert Stinson too, the bass player? Yeah, well, he was the first bass player that played with Charles's group. So That's yeah, I know him. So I mean, the yeah, point is that played, it's, played, it's, I played yeah. with them. So I mean, uh, uh, mm-hmm. I guess I guess it's it has a, a lot to do with the cross pollinization of music that was happening mm-hmm. at that time as well. I mean, you you never shied away. I mean, can you talk about um, getting away from just the genres, but just the idea of maybe the most the, uh, like the funk or the soul groups that you might have played with as well? Um, mm-hmm. uh, any of the bands out, outside that wouldn't necessarily be considered jazz? Yeah, well, with somebody like. Um, uh, What's his name? Or friends with with my, uh, with Miles quite a bit. They did a lot of hanging hanging out together. I I know I was playing a gig with one of those funk groups which you're talking about. I don't remember the name, but as we were playing, then the conga player, uh, which was Willie Bobo, he said, "Hey man, you want to play with my band?" <laughs> I love it. And uh, you played with I Bobo. I didn't have any reason to say no because uh, there was nothing happening. <laughs> you know, doing. Uh, a, a short spell, so I said, "Yeah." So I enjoyed it with him because he had a lot of, lot of character, and he knew the the, the good stuff when he heard it. You know, I just want to. Joe Fell yeah. was playing tenor saxophone. Chick was playing piano, and uh, who else could that have been? There? Was Ierto? Uh, is that uh, is that Return to Forever? <laughs> uh, well, that was uh, much after our involvement. At least mine, anyway. I, I, yeah, I, I just want to... Forever, I think, did have uh, uh, Joe Farrell playing on it, playing flute, as a matter of fact. Absolutely. One of the pieces. No, I, I want to just read to the audience here. Uh, two years of Garnet Brown's career, and you listen to the diversity of the, of the musicians that you played mm-hmm. with. Okay, you ready for this? The aforementioned Freddie Hubbard, Diodato, The Free Design, Hubert Laws, Bill Evans and the George Russell Orchestra, Howard Tate, Hermeto, B.B. King, King Curtis, David Clayton Thomas, Charles Erlin, Randy Weston, Roy Ayers, 
Joe Chambers, Delbert McClinton, McCoy Tyner, uh, John Lucian, Selden Powell, Louis Bonfa, Ramatam, Dakota Staten, Sebesky, Rusty Bryant, Donnie Hathaway. Dia, I mean, I don't. This is just through '73. Uh, I mean, I hadn't left New York yet. Yeah. How for younger cats out there who don't have the opportunity to play live six, seven nights a week, three weeks in a row like you did? Yeah. Okay, so they really can't get comfortable with their own individual sound on the bandstand. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice to cats that are just looking to play music? It's either good or bad. I come from the Duke Ellington School. I'm not into genres. It's crippled music. Can you talk? What would be, would be your advice? Because, I mean, your elasticity, your ability to play in all these different environments, it didn't just happen magically. And you may not have been conscious of it at the time, but what tips do you have for younger cats that just want to stretch out and play music? Mm-hmm. Well, if they feel that they are prepared enough to just stretch out and play music because of as you uh, articulated that, or he first, I guess, um, that's a situation that involves whether or not when you come up on something, is this going to help you step another foot to the left or right or center with the music? I I really don't know what that person is totally uh, engaged with, but I will say this, that in New York, we, in those years when I was there, uh, which was 13 years, I mean, we would be going to record dates and uh, jingles and stuff all, I mean, for the longest until the Salem cigarette com- <laughs> commercials got axed. Right. They got rid of smoke, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Which was fine, you know, it took me a while to get rid of smoke myself. <laughs> well, actually, cigarette so, companies uh, cigarette companies were huge sponsors of Jazz Fest, the cool jazz festival. I mean, I, I, I went to the visit the, uh, you know who the skipper Henry Franklin is? Yeah, the bass player. Yeah, okay, so Henry, I've been, I've, I've crashed at Henry's house about three times, and he's got this, this like, uh, advertising poster framed over his sink, and it's Ron Carter playing upright bass and the, and the, and it's an advertisement for cool cigarettes it says there's only one way to play it cool and so you knew i mean again we didn't know the health problems of it but i mean yeah. i mean so let's let's go through a typical day of garnett brown at the peak of the studio scene take us through the, the, were there times when you would go in and not see the sun and come out and the sun was already down yeah that's right Tell, those t- things would happen like that because they get started early uh, just as a quick thing uh, about that and mel uh, we did early morning sessions, and I think two of them that I know for sure were done at, at about 7 o'clock in the morning. But, well, that was almost like just now getting home and starting up and go back to work again. But, <laughs> right, because you'd, you'd, you'd play, yeah. So did you... We, we you, were able to do it. I think all of us just young enough, you know, and spry enough to, to hang in there and then go into a... Uh, uh, number one studio and and knock down all that music that Joe uh, uh, Williams was singing. Terrific arrangements and things. I don't know if you heard that album or anything, but you probably should get it. I need to. Which, which album? I mean, there's a ton of Joe Williams out. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So good, good question. Yeah. Uh, 
I think it's Joe Williams meets Thad's Jones and Mel Lewis. Oh, I, I can't wait to. Th- and so the Garnett. I mean, yeah, Garnett. Sure, yeah, you. I, I mean, dude, the right. Delbert McClinton album you were on. You rock that album out. I love that album so much, and the fact that they would take cats. I mean, so you. Um, uh, did you play a lot of we're in New York? This is curious because I've done a lot of work on the Fillmore District in San Francisco, and and you know you had everybody from <clears throat> Ed Kelly, Richard Groove, Holmes. These organ trios would would play from two to six in the morning, mm. and and I'm wondering about those dawn sessions in New York because that's if I'm understanding you correctly, you'd play those dawn sessions, you'd finish up at six, and then you'd be in the studio at seven. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So did you have? Did, did, can you talk about? Yeah. What, most cases, like with the, the studio guys who did the uh, uh, the networks who were working with the network orchestras, right. which they had three big ones, and then later on came uh, uh, the the other guy from England that had also a smaller band. So there was what, four bands out there. So, I mean, in, in that aspect of uh, entertainment, which was good and legitimate and everything was okay and nobody's getting cheated or anything about anything. So anyway, when, when uh, Ernie Royal, people like him, Jerome Richardson, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Thad, who was working at, I think he was ABC or NBC, I really forget, not terribly important, but it didn't stop uh, Thad from going on about his business, which was really high-level business, even as the days went by and he had to go to work every day, you know. So, but anyway, a, a lot of us became a bit involved because he uh, would ask one or two of us to copy a particular chart and, and all that, so everything would be ready, you know, on the date when it, when it came about. We knew when it came about, you know, so if you felt that you were really uh under the i would just say uh um, under a heavy load it it didn't matter much because you knew that and you knew what you had to do to finish up with the music get it there with it under your arm like anybody else and pull out (laughs) your your instrument and get ready to record so we did that stuff with joe uh Williams and did another one similar to that with uh, Brown. Uh, what's what's her name? Uh, yeah, I just uh, Ruth Brown. Uh, Ruth Brown. Yeah. yeah. Fine Brown Frame, yeah, 1969. She she'd, she'd say uh, put that stuff out there, and we all just jump right in it. Garnett, and some you... of those things are really lovely. You know, uh, solos and it was just perfect. Yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff. It's funny I, when I listen to a lot of you really. You're kind of you. Pl- you play that Muhammad Ali, you know, very well. That sort of uh, you know, rope dope. You don't. I mean, if somebody, um, you know, like I listen to Fat Albert Rotunda, and I'm waiting for Garnett Brown. I, you know, you, you come out strong in the beginning. You're playing the verses, and then ultimately, it's Johnny Coles or Joe Henderson that gets. I mean, were you somebody that just tried to fit in? You didn't crave the spotlight. No, I, I just didn't think that that was uh, appropriate at all. You know, now there are some people who would maybe maybe do that uh, and not show it. I don't know who any of those people are, and some would would show it. You know, me not being in that particular setting because I don't think people like to 
the uh, Joe Henderson and uh, Buster Williams and uh, drummer at that time was the big hot uh, blues drummer in New York for years, and, and he's still back there. Was it 2D uh, Heath? I'm trying to think was of his 2D, name. Uh, it was Albert Heath? Uh, no. Oh, uh, but he he was on the same date. So we uh, there actually were two drummers on, on, on that date. So uh, Herbie knew exactly what he was doing. When certain tunes came up, boom, he pointed to whichever drummer he, he wanted on there. Wow. And then Buster at that time played Fender bass on one of them. You know, and it was a little surprise uh, to me because I hadn't seen it, you know, on any of the gigs that we had played or, or straight ahead uh, jazz tunes that we recorded, you know, in a couple of three albums, whatever they were. Do you remember also, when I, I listened to that album extensively this week, searching for Garnett Brown solos, but I kept hearing this it, on the back of the vinyl, it lists you, everybody except there's, there's def- definitely a guitar player. And he's not listed. Do you do you remember the guitar player that played? Oh, uh, you know uh, that that could be because I think on one of the, on one of those tunes he really wanted to uh, get some uh, funk rhythm in there, not just the piano and and drums. You don't remember who it was though. No. Hey, okay. So uh, I'm, this is really important. Can you talk to me about the first time that you went to Africa? First time I went to Africa was in 1960. And the reason was because uh, there were two brothers who was contacted by a friend whom he had been at Juilliard, not Juilliard, but at uh, up in Boston. Uh, oh, yeah, no, the... Uh, that's the other big, Berkeley, big school. Berkeley, Berkeley. Anyway, it might Ber- come up in a minute. Berkeley School of Music. Berkeley, yeah, yeah exactly. So what, what had happened was that he got the phone call and the composer of the music uh, spoke, uh, got a hold of him and, and asked him if they would be interested in such a project because what they were doing was, was trying to create music uh, direct or, or, um, or when I say direct, that means this is what we have done and we've also done this to show that that can be uh, some wonderful experiences within the music that he had composed. So we had to fly to uh, South Africa, and that was 1960. And But we took a couple of different routes. We took the first one, we went to Paris. And I, you know, personally, I really didn't know why it was that we were there, because we didn't do anything there, but just run around in places. Right. You know? right. But I guess there was some some reason for it, but uh, it didn't really uh, interest me that much. You know, it's just when they got ready to say, "Okay, we're going to be doing it now," and 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 get into uh, Johannesburg, all right, Joburg, as most of them call it. Mm-hmm. So we did that, and we had the rehearsals, and we started playing that music uh, for radio people, you know, disc jockeys. And, and things of that type, and in a club scene. So I don't know really what had happened because the uh, South African uh, radio company, I don't really know exactly what do I think, they're four initials, uh, 
the persons that own the uh, um, television and radio uh, communications and so forth. One was actually the president uh, of that company. And it was interesting to kind of rub shoulders with those people, especially the way people were talking, because the that uh, radio station, or it might have been more than just a radio station, though, you know, I, I can't get into all of those because I don't really know. But uh, we got a chance to talk about a broad range of things, which was really interesting to experience. I don't know really what happened at the end. Uh, all I know is that we got back home. <laughs> Not that there was a holy thing keeping us back. You know, it was it was just as smooth as it could be. You know, we went to Bourbon, and the boy, the Golden Inn, where, where, uh, uh, at Bourbon, we went up into this fine building, and it was everybody was just having a great time. All kinds of mixtures in there too, of folks. Who was the? Who were the brothers that you went with? Uh, no, I was saying that the head of the radio orchestration, uh, not uh, radio, uh, and. Also, they did, I, right, no, one of the things that the reason that it didn't happen with a lot of other folks was because they didn't have any folks. Right. The, uh, that South African broadcast system came on six months before we went there. Wow. So they were planning things already. It was a good, that was a wonderful thing, I thought. You know, well, and Garnett, I, it was, it yeah. was hard to know what uh, uh, evolved and continued to hopefully grow <laughs> and uh, and so forth about that I, I really don't know exactly where, That's okay. where they went I want to tell you man I, I know we stretched out today and you probably I brought up things you haven't thought about in, probably since the time they happened but I, I want to thank you so much for being part of the Jake Feinberg show man we'll be in touch and uh, uh, yeah man uh, much love to you and your family yay thank you very much it was really I love the questions and uh, I, I think it's very useful to be able to uh, put out a sub- substantive kind of uh, query about any subject or whatever. Well, and uh, friend me on Facebook because I want to be transmitting these stories and blasting them all over the world. And <laughs> all right, yeah, all right, brother, we'll be good. We'll be. We'll talk to you. I'll talk to you soon, man. Yeah. Okay, man. Be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Give, uh, give the the top cat uh, a nice. Hello for me because he, he's done a great deal by creating that Facebook. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Garnett, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, man. Bye bye. Yep. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be back next week with David Crosby. Have a great week. Bye bye.